And I feel like that's very important to be happy is to be able to look forward and see, all right, now what? Now, what is it that I want to do in my life and how do I make that happen? And sometimes the adversity is the thing that actually gives you the gift of what it is that you want to create in your life. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. This week we have the beautiful Nicole Hannon on the call. This amazing soul has a really interesting childhood. Spent most of it moving around because of her father's work in forestry, living in places like Borneo. And she also did things like boarding school and ended up on the Gold Coast and then lived in the USA. But it was thanks to an amazing teacher in WA that really taught her or told her that she had the ability to be an amazing volleyball player. She ended up getting a scholarship doing a sports medicine degree, moved back to Australia age 21 and started playing professionally and on the beach. She's a world champion. She got to the Athens Olympics and then through her love of uh, nutrition, health and wellness, she went on to become a naturopath and she also has a master's of medical research. She's currently studying full-time doing her PhD and research and on clinical trials. She's been lecturing for a few years. She has an amazing, gorgeous daughter, Charlie, who was one of the reasons why she wanted to do this research, as you'll hear, and a gorgeous husband, Steve. They live on the Gold Coast, and she is coaching now, helping Charlie play for Queensland. You're going to enjoy this week's class. Yes, it is a class. There's lots of lessons and incredible messages through this, but you're also going to love hearing from one of the world's most precious souls, I look forward to hearing your comments and feedback into my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training, my Instagram, Kim Morrison and the number 28. You can also go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. Cannot wait to hear what you think of this incredible human. Enjoy. Take care. Be kind. As you can hear, I am delighted, absolutely beside myself, to have this beautiful soul on the Self Love Podcast this week. Gorgeous Nicole Hannon, welcome to the Self Love Podcast, beautiful soul. Thank you so much for having me. This is an excellent excuse just to have a catch up with you. (laughs) We sort of said that off here, didn't we? So, um, you know, I love the fact that I get to interview friends and get to interview people who I look up to and I'm in awe of. Some people may not know the name Nicole Hannon, but they may know the name Nicole Sanderson. Could you give us a little bit of a brief background as to who you are, maybe what you were passionate about, what you went through growing up and how you got into becoming one of Australia's most amazing athletes and of course what you're up to today oh so many so many things where to start um I guess the thing that probably defines a big part of my life was volleyball so I played indoor volleyball and beach then beach volleyball for Australia for about 16 years and and went to the Olympics represented Australia at the Olympics in Athens in 2004 um But I guess that feels like this whole lifetime ago now that I've uh, done other things in my life. And 
I think that my upbringing from the very beginnings is kind of a a bit of a crazy out of the norm sort of childhood. So I don't know. Where do you want me to begin? (laughs) I want you to just go right back. Tell us why it was crazy. Like what made your beginning of your life crazy? Give us that. Uh, So I was born in Perth in Western Australia and my father was in the forestry industry and it meant that we moved around a lot. So from when I was about five years old, we moved to Borneo. We lived in the middle of the jungle. We had to catch, you know, six-seater airplanes from, uh, where were we, Jakarta into our little village where we lived but there were no shops. There was no anything other than one little club that had a swimming pool and a bar, but there were about, I think, maybe 10 expats and we literally lived in the middle of the jungle. So we had, I had a pet monkey, I had little beetles and snakes and all sorts of things, a big giant guava tree in my backyard that I used to climb up with my monkey and she'd pick the good guavas from me and bring them back. So, yeah, that was a very interesting, interesting beginning. And then we moved all over. For, so that was just one place. I think we moved maybe back to Australia for a little bit and then we moved to uh, New Guinea when I was about seven. And then the Irian Jaya conflict began around then. So we were there for I think it was about 18 months or somewhere around that. And, um, again, funny little stories from there. I think we had a dugong that lived in the bay we swam in. And uh, at one point we had a baby cassowary that was just roaming, living in our backyard. (laughs) Uh, Things like that, feeding toucans bananas from our front porch. And uh, I guess things that you don't really come across when you live in Australia. Uh, And then I think that conflict that we started to hear gunshots and started to see sort of that military action in our little little town where we lived. So we packed up for safety reasons and I think we were back in Australia again for a little small period of time and then went to the Solomon Islands. And I remember living there, uh, I guess it was for about three years, and those are, that's actually I think because I was about eight when we went there, maybe eight to 10 or 11, I think those were really formative years in my childhood. And so a lot of my favourite childhood memories and the stories that I tell my daughter uh, are always, she's like, tell me a story about when you lived in the islands and, you know, bedtime stories end up being. And then on the weekends we'd go out to islands and where there was nothing but a palm tree and a reef and we'd snorkel and we'd find you know, submerged Japanese fighter planes from the war and we'd swim with sharks and catch barracuda on the way home and things like that. So just, yeah, out of the ordinary, out of the ordinary. A lot of correspondence um, learning. So my mum was pretty amazing with that. And, uh, yeah, then we, we, my parents actually divorced after that and we ended up, then it sort of we all went all over my sister and I were at boarding school in Perth uh, for a while and then my mum moved back to the Gold Coast and that's sort of where we ended up so the Gold Coast is really home for me from when I was about 10 or 11. When you think back on your childhood when you actually look at that beginning and compare it today where even our children 
you know, I've lived the last two years in a very crazy world. How does it make you feel as a mum now thinking about your childhood compared to Charlie's? Oh, wow. It, it is, you know, it's, it's, um, I feel like I've had this, this incredible childhood that I'm so, so grateful for. And I try, I try to give Charlie as many experiences as possible. And in terms of we travel when we can, although the last couple of years has been very tricky with that, but I think we've instilled that travel bug in her just by going at least once a year to a different country and experiencing different culture. Um, But yeah, it is, it is really tough. I feel, I feel sad for these kids that they're not getting as many experiences as what I did. Although mine, my mine's very unique. I don't think many, many, many kids got, got those sorts of experiences. Actually, I remember we used to, when we were in the Solomon Islands, we used to do all of our, our schoolwork in the morning and my dad would come home for lunch every day and our mission was to just get all of our work done in the morning. And then when he left after lunch, he'd take us and we'd stand in the back of his his ute and, like, hair blowing in the wind, dry. he'd drive us to this river and it's my all-time happy place, favourite memory of my life. Uh, and he'd just drop us at this river, like, in the middle of the jungle, which is so bizarre now. I'm, I think wow, if something had gone wrong, you know, I, I'm now as a parent, all I can see is the things that could go wrong. And I'm in super protection mode of like, nope, 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 nope. Uh, and I think, wow, how did we manage that? You know, I think I might've broken a few toes at one point and, but you just sort of wait until they come back, you know, we just have to wait until dad came back and got us and do the best with what we could. Um, but yeah, just that afternoons in that river, like there was a big log that was over it and rapids and we'd get the big giant inner tubes from the caterpillar machines, like these enormous inner tubes and like float down the rapids and cover ourselves in clay rocks and, and then jump off into the big pool and we'd just spend hours and hours exploring in this jungle, which was pretty amazing. Do you think then for you, is that where your love of adventure, your love of travel, your love of um, doing different things, maybe even the love of water, all of those things now, especially being on the Gold Coast, is that something you are born with or do you think it was because of your experiences you grew to love all of that sort of thing? I think that, oh, gosh, is this this sort of that nature versus nurture question really, isn't it? And I feel like I have parents who encouraged and, and nurtured that part of me. And obviously just being sort of exposed to the, those different environments early on, it's just you don't know any different. This is just the normal. And so when I came back to Australia, I couldn't have a I couldn't imagine being at the same school. Like my husband was pretty much the exact opposite childhood as what I had. He's got his parents are still together. They, you know, had their their anniversary. I can't remember how many years, but it's a lot of years. And um, he had this really sort of stable childhood where he went to the same primary school, went to the same high school. All his siblings, they all went to the same. And I just like I love that so much as well because I just see what a beautiful family dynamic that is and how they all um you know they're all so solid together they're such a beautiful family I'm very lucky to have have married into the Hannans I get this other experience that is so completely different to what my childhood was Um, but I I feel like I still I wouldn't change I wouldn't change the 
the opportunities and the um, that I had because I feel like it's made me a lot more versatile in life. I feel like my ability to just roll with it, make a decision and just jump in the deep end and, and find a way, I do believe that that has come from my childhood um, and a lot of the things that were adversities, you know, I went to boarding school when I was nine and I was in year five and that that's pretty challenging to be a little kid in a boarding school as the youngest the youngest there and I look back at it now and I think oh my gosh I was so little but in the moment I had no choice to do, other than to just get on with it and survive and find it find find the best in that situation and I feel like I try to do that in life I have ever since I think that's one of your most endearing qualities as well. But I want to ask you then, coming from that and looking at your perspective on life now as a mother, as a woman, as an adult, as a married woman, knowing that your parents divorced, I just, I'm curious to know, so many people say that their childhood makes or breaks them or they use their childhood as a reason as to why they do something or can't do something. So given you had such a pretty unique upbringing, quite a profoundly different upbringing, yet your parents sadly parted, um, I want to ask you then, does that have impact for you now looking at your life? Did you ever feel like you were a victim from your childhood or have you learned that, you know, there's struggle in all ways and there's always a way, as you say, to find the best in everything? I think there's, there's obviously, you know, there's sadness. Of course, it's sad when the family unit changes and that's challenging for kids, you know, and I really, you know, you need to honour that part of that little child who's, who, you know, as a kid you, don't, you want to see the best in your parents. You don't want to, you don't know all that goes on in the background. Um, you know, I think that, at the time, I, I'm sure that I was sad. I don't, I don't really remember it, so I don't know whether I just sort of compartmentalised and just got on with the job. Um, but I feel now that I think there is value. If it wasn't working, it wasn't working, and there's, there's also value in that. You know, I can't at this point in time, so many years on, I can't, and I don't re really remember my parents being together because I was so young that I feel like. I can't imagine a life like that. And if they weren't happy, how that would, may have impacted me negatively being in a household of unhappiness. So um, I think that we need to just, we need to just roll with what life throws at us. And there's things that we can control and things that we can't. And if we sit in a victim mentality, um, I guess, trying to justify why things have gone badly and, and wallowing in that, then we can't move on. We can't stay in the present and move on with what we want to create in our life and our future. And I feel like that's very important to be happy is to be able to look forward and see, all right, now what? Now what is it that I want to do in my life and how do I make that happen? And sometimes the adversity is the thing that actually gives you the gift of what it is that you want to create in your life um, and I know that that's probably a conversation we're going to get to, but I believe that some of the biggest things that have been the biggest adversities for me have actually been the fuel for my fire that has created a lot of 
positive in my life and the ability to help other people. Let's talk about that then. You are someone who most would look at and think you've had a great life. You're amazing. You're talented. You're strong. You're fit. You're healthy. You're beautiful. You're a mom, like I said, and you've got all of these incredible things and you live on the Gold Coast and you're tanned and you're incredible. (laughs) So when we think about that, most people would look at you and go, she's so lucky. She's so blessed. She's got it all together. Um, And some people with a negative mindset would say it's all right for her. I want to go down the tunnel then with you. I know life hasn't always been idyllic or perfect. And even though you may say you've blocked parts of your childhood, you've also used that as fuel. But I want to know, talk to us then about how has Nicole, how has she managed or traversed the tough times? And maybe you could give us an example of something that really challenged you and how you pushed yourself using all of those life skills, your personality, your innate knowing to come out the other side. Oh, it's hard to pick. <laughs> I feel like I've got so so many examples that I could <laughs> use for that. I feel like really that it's been a, a pattern in my life, um, that adversity to flipping it to a challenge. I mean, maybe I'll just go chronologically and give you a couple of examples. But so the boarding school thing, um, Yes, that happened when I was little. I came back to the Gold Coast, but then um, there was a situation here on the Gold Coast um, just that I I wasn't happy with when I was in year nine. And I, I actually went, I chose to go back to boarding school in Perth for year nine and 10. And if I hadn't had that situation that I wasn't happy with, I wouldn't have gone back to the boarding school. And when I was at that boarding school, the PA teacher there um, who is still someone who's in my life her name's Anita Palm and she um she has been an incredible she's create she's the catalyst for my volleyball life she was the best volleyball player in Australia at the time and she saw me play sports and said you should try it for the volleyball team and I said oh well I've never done it I don't know what I'm doing and she said no no give it a try and I was terrible and I got on like the I don't know third team at school uh, they sort of hid me in the back and wouldn't let me get the ball because I was so bad. And she showed this belief in me and told me that if I wanted to be good at it, I could. And it annoyed me so much that I wasn't good at it, that I just went to the trainings of the top team and spent all this time in the gym, hitting a ball against the wall so I could learn how to do it by myself. And yeah, I guess that's the beginning of that story. So I guess that adversity that was happening here on the Gold Coast that sent me back there, who knows, maybe I never would have found volleyball if all of those things hadn't aligned. Um, and, and obviously that has created, has gone on to be a big part of my life. And then during volleyball, there were, there were a number of, you know, I've had everything reconstructed. I've had knee reconstruction a year, a year and a half out from the Olympics. And then the come, you know, I, I came back, um, this was for the Sydney Olympics, 1999. I, I did my, um, my tore my right ACL while I was competing. Um, and then I was just, just about to sort of, it was right at the borderline of when I could rehab and come back to still make the qualifying for 2000. Um, and I did, I rehabbed, I came back, I worked my butt off. And then the third tournament back when I was, it was looking good for Olympic qualification, I did my other ACL. And so 
um, two ACL reconstructions within 11 months, no Olympics. But I said, you know what? At the time I was living in Bondi and that's where the Olympics was going to be. And I got up on my, I was on my balcony looking down at the beach with my, you know, crutches and my swollen leg. And I just went, you know what? This is in my backyard. I am not going to miss this opportunity to be a part of this. And so I made some calls and this is, you know, I think this is part of what you're talking about with that victim mentality and making things happen was I could sit there and watch and be sad and go, poor me, I don't get to be a part of it. But I did and I, I made phone calls. I was like, I know people in SOCOG because I've, who are running the volleyball, I'm going to call them. I went and did a, a, a radio, um, uh, it was, I can't remember, it was like a radio announcing thing at the School of Film, Television, Radio in Sydney. And then I put in my application to be the presentation supervisor. And so I was the presentation supervisor at the Olympics. I got to be at every match. I got to be on the sand for the grand final. I got to um, tell them what music to play and fire up the crowd and be a part of that whole amazing dynamic that was the Olympic gold medal matches. And two of my friends won you know, my friends won the gold medal. And so I still got to experience that, even though it wasn't how I had originally envisaged and wanted it to be. Um, fun fact for you, I got to serve the very first ball over, like they gave me the opportunity to be the first serve over the Olympic um, net when it got set up. And I was like, sure. And so here comes, here I come hopping along with my funny leg because I'd only recently had a knee reconstruction and went to serve the ball over the net and <laughs> I hadn't really done much for a while and I I didn't even reach the net I just served it and it sort of landed on the sand just in front of the net and it was it was pretty embarrassing yeah and <laughs> luckily no one had iPhones and things at that time or that we would be going on social media because it was very embarrassing so yeah anyway I don't think I've told that story out loud before. So there, it's an exclusive. Um, yeah, sorry. I feel like I'm just rambling now. I've oh, you're lost not, the you're point not. of my, um, my uh, new question. No, you're not. It's wonderful. And I think you're giving us insight into, you know, something that many, many, many people, only 0.012% or whatever it is, ever gets to experience being an Olympian athlete. So to hear the behind the scenes. But uh, you know, as an athlete, I'd like to ask you these questions then. As an athlete, your body is on the line every single day. You demand of it every single day in every way. But a big part of your uh, talent, your results, your outcomes are also very mind-focused and mindset-based. How did you manage? I mean, it sounds like, yes, you've always had a glass half full and, yes, you've seen the good in that. But I don't know, I can't help it. I'm pretty glass half full, but if I was looking at everyone in a game or a match that I should have been in and I could have been there, or the competitive side of me would have felt very disillusioned with that. But were there any moments you did cry or you felt, you know, distraught about it as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it, it's, oh, yeah. It, it's not like, I feel like it's okay to go through that. It's the end of the world. Woe is me. You know, like that's just a natural response to something that's devastating. And sometimes you don't see, you can't see the benefit of it until you're way past it. Um, and I think, yeah, I went through, you know, I guess we're sort of 
saying snippets and it sounds as though I just went, oh, no, that happened. I'll be fine. I'll just move on to something else. But in reality, no, it did not go, did, did not go like that. Um, and especially after the second knee and then, you know, that's an even bigger kick in the kick in the guts when it's happened once and you work, you, I worked so hard to get back. Um, and yeah, look at it. It was bittersweet being there. Um, the emotional side of it, but I think being able to manage your emotions is it, as an athlete is really important. And, um, cause it needs, you're under pressure on court, so much pressure especially when it comes down to things like Olympic qualifications and, you know, you win this match, you go to the Olympics, you don't win this match, you don't go to the Olympics, you know, like there's a, there's a huge amount of pressure. Um, and I think I, I, I wasn't necessarily the best at handling pressure in, in those big matches. There's plenty of examples, even at the Olympics where I think, Oh my gosh. I just felt like I was going to die. I had just like the anxiety and the stress and the trying to find a way to stay in the moment instead of worrying about what might happen. Um, it's, it's hard. It's so, so tough, you know? And I, I, um, I think it's only once I retired and, and I think having Charlie, like having my daughter gave me a lot more perspective on, I don't want to, I don't want to devalue the whole Olympic process, but it's like having that perspective of this is just a game. It's not real life. I look, if I lose the game, yes, it sucks. Yes. I don't go to the Olympics. There's lots of reasons why that's really terrible, but I'm not actually like, it's not actually going to hurt me. <laughs> you know, like I, I can still go on with my life and do other things. And um, I think that it was so real for me in the moment of when I was playing that it's hard to separate that, that it is just a game. Like at any point, any Olympian ever, like it's just a game. It's just a sport. It's just a thing that you do. It's not who you are. Um, and I think we tie up who we are so much in, in that. And, and I'm very guilty of that. Like so much of my, my value, what I feel is my value. I tie up, too much in, in the results. And it's given me, it's something I'm, I work with. I constantly work with trying to, trying to pull apart that need for validity in terms of results or achievements and, and just be able to sit with, you know what? I think, I think it's enough. I think I'm okay with what I've done and, and, and getting more titles or degrees or awards doesn't necessarily make me more worthy or make me a better person. You know what I mean? Oh, and I, look, you know what? I think you've brought up something really important, which is why I love speaking to you. We sit in our armchairs watching these high-quality athletes. We, it looks so easy. But elite athletes make their job easy, their, their profession easy or their, their game easy. And it's not until you're sitting there live and it's not until you're sitting there watching someone like Nadal or Federer serve that you go, holy heck, I didn't even see it. Or mm. it's not until you see someone like you girls, how tall you are or how high you jump in a sand where there's nothing that you can actually, there's, there's nothing to help you. And I just, I just want to give you kudos for that because I think so many of us can really armchair judge. But I love what you're saying because 
everybody, my husband as a professional athlete, he was a cricketer, used to say all the time, the opinions are like assholes, everybody's got one. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's where I love sport or high quality entertainment or maybe actors or musicians or artists where you have to allow that water off a duck's back kind of mentality to get on, do the job. But most importantly, which I heard underneath all of this, was the enjoyment factor. You guys did it because not only did you train hard to become good at it, but clearly you loved it. You would not have given this much time and devotion to doing something that you didn't love. What would you say to someone who is an aspiring athlete? I mean, now you're coaching, now you're supporting people to come through it. What would you have wanted your younger self to know now that maybe you didn't know? Or did that beautiful teacher in WA actually give you some insights along the way? Oh, look, I think there are so many things that I would have told my younger self and I just wish I could go back and support myself in that because I feel like I would have been such a better athlete. I, I, you know, the mental side of it and the ability to handle that pressure, that, that was probably the biggest weakness in my game. It wasn't physical. It was, it was emotional and mental um, and now I'm getting the second round of it by coaching. I'm, my daughter started playing just in the, within the last year, which is super cute. Um, and so it's, it's managing the daily chats with her about how to train and go and um, trying to help her to, well, I guess it's trying to help her to be able to process it in a better way than probably I did. But funnily enough, I find it very I find it challenging also because sometimes I start to speak to her how I would if it was me and it's the old me and I find it really, I catch myself doing it and then I, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to ruin her because I'm saying, I'm saying things that might seem like they're putting pressure on her and then it's like balancing that sort of mentality that you need to be an athlete, the ability to be, to be tough on yourself, to know that you have to work hard, to know that that's not good enough and you have to continually strive, but it's trying to put it in, um, deliver it in a way that doesn't set up a whole lot of um, self-worth issues or it's, it's oh, my gosh, it's so tricky. <laughs> it's so, so tricky. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a challenge. But I'm, I'm also coaching some older, some of the older players, like the later teen um, girls, uh, which has been really rewarding, um, challenging but rewarding, and I'm trying to, just have a lot of empathy for, for the, the kids that I'm coaching and um, trying to find ways to help them be more supported or I guess supported as much as they can be from a coach. So a lot of my messages to them are very trying to get them that rounded sort of from a life lesson perspective, not just about what's happening on the court or what their, their skills are. It's trying to work out how to get them to feel a certain way when they're on the court. And that will then translate to the performance. That makes sense. Absolutely. I think I've always looked at sport as a metaphor for life. I've always looked at it that we have challenges, we get blisters, we get chafing, we get ACL reconstructions, <laughs> we get wins, we get losses, we get highs, we get lows. And I think really you could say the same thing in life metaphorically. We, we have all of these things and it's still every single one of them and every single part of our life comes back to not what happens to us or around us, but how we respond to that. And I think if any coach or parent has a good intention, a good heart and wants the best for their child or the kids in their team, 
then that coming from a place of love is way more powerful and way more profound for them with a little bit of a a stick as well at times you know sometimes we do need to be pushed or push ourselves and a coach is someone who will get that out of us so I I think what you're saying is is incredible and I think having experienced it you would be able to put that into all platforms of your life especially at an elite level there's something about that little top half a percent of people in the world that ever get to experience professional sport there's just there's something very special about them And speaking of special, like you obviously had this in your life for a number of years, almost two decades, volleyball has been your life. Is there anything in particular that you took from that for you to learn um, specifically that now is a part of your professional life? Is there any one thing that you think has volleyball has really gifted you? Um, In all honesty, I don't, I, oh, well, gosh, volleyball has gifted me many, many things, um, friendships, travel, you know, life experience. I mean, it, there's, I, I can't, I can't list all of the things that volleyball has gifted me. Um, but I think, I think from a, um, from a professional sport perspective, translating that into what is in my life, um, it's about that for me it's been that attitude of I guess it's sort of like a perfectionism which is sort of a double-edged sword really isn't it um trying to always do the very best I can and, and perfect whatever it is that I'm working on at that time and I think that that really has translated into my professional career as a naturopath and now as a researcher um I I don't ever do anything half-assed because I know that if I if I did, I wouldn't get the results that I wanted. And so it's really about commitment. It's about perseverance. Um, and now I'm doing, and you learn that from sport, obviously. I think work ethic is huge. And, again, you can learn that from any sport and any, any athlete who's at the top of their sport knows that those are all very, very important and they absolutely translate to real-life um, work in other fields. Um, it's funny, I'm doing, I'm doing a PhD now and I'm sort of, oh, I'm not quite halfway through, but it's, it's funny looking at it. I, I guess I've always had this, oh, you have to be really smart to do a PhD or something. And I think that sort of seems like it's maybe the general um, consensus. But what I've realised as I'm doing it um, because there's, you know, this, the universities support you and you get all these emails about, are you okay? And, you know, these different ways of trying to make sure that, um, PhD candidates are supported while they're doing their, their degree. But I've realized that most of it is just about perseverance. Like it's really about doing certain steps, working really hard, making sure you tick all the boxes and not stopping until it's done. And so, I feel like it's almost a thing that anyone could do if they had that attitude and the right support Um, because I really do feel that my skills as an athlete have definitely set me up for success in this part of my life. I I think it's incredible and I love that and I absolutely believe 100% in what you're saying. I've always thought that 
I wasn't intelligent enough because I didn't go to uni. But I also know with my attitude and my never give in attitude also and desire to always get somewhere or finish something, um, my athlete's mentality, never wanting a DNF next to my name, did not finish, was always something that's kept me going in all aspects of life. And yeah, it's funny. It's those limiting beliefs or limiting thoughts that we have that can you know, they can actually limit us in all ways unless we realize here is what it is. Here I am now and give it my absolute best. We can do anything. And I really appreciate that because I think for many people listening to you, they might not realize they too have the same potential. But you talked about being a naturopath. You talk about natural medicine and and the beauty of um, perhaps growing up in such a natural environment talk to us a little bit about why naturopathy, why you chose that and why it's so important for you with this PhD around the research and maybe give us some background around how it links back to your beautiful family. Mm. Well, naturopathy, I guess, to start with, I, my grand, both of my grandmothers were really into natural kind of therapies. My, my mum's mum and mum's dad, they owned a, one of the first health food stores, I think in Perth and, uh, and then, so my mum was always interested in natural, healthy things, um, food as medicine, etc. And then on my dad's side, um, my oma was amazing. Like I, my, some of my happy place was just going and picking the herbs from her garden so that we could make herbal tea at lunchtime. It was always just fresh herbs from the garden, uh, those sorts of things. And so um, I guess that just started there just with my upbringing. Um, and I was always just very interested in, in, in natural supplements, natural, like, like I said, food as medicine. And it's funny now talking to my, my friends when I went to uni in the States, some of them talked to me and they're always like, oh, that's, I remember you used to fix us with all of these natural things and I don't even, God, I don't even know what I was doing. I hope I didn't do anything dangerous to someone. <laughs> um, but, um, but when I finished or sort of after um, uh, an injury, I was, I think it was my first shoulder reconstruction, I um, started doing a naturopathy degree because it was something that always called for me. And I think I'd started a couple of courses back when I was living in Sydney after I'd had that second knee reconstruction. And uh, just sort of I ended up getting a scholarship uh, to do my naturopathy degree. So it took me a long time to get that degree because I was sort of off and on playing. Um, And then I ended up finishing it right after my daughter was born, not, not long after my daughter was born and leading into, you know, how this has all come about in terms of what research I'm doing now. So my daughter was born with a, a rare disease, rare gastrointestinal disease called eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, which is a mouthful, yes, um, but it's basically an allergy-related disease that causes a lot of uh, inflammation to the gastrointestinal tract. And she was very, very sick when she was little. Basically, she couldn't eat any foods. She had to live on a special formula. And um, we were we tried to be as proactive as we could. We had her diagnosed really early because we pushed and pushed for that diagnosis. So I think she was about seven or eight months old when we first had her diagnosed. And we spent a long time just managing it very carefully. And I guess the, the experiencing that adversity uh, and going through the process of um, 
working with it in the medical system, um, finding out who to get support from. And then by that time when my daughter was, you know, a few years old, I was in clinical practice and I was able to start helping other parents of children with, we call it EOE for short, Um, other children with EOE was actually very rewarding for me um, to have gone through that process myself. And so it's actually a disease that um, Charlie was really unwell with for quite a long time and and very limited with her food. But, and I don't think I've spoken to you, Kim, but you're not going to believe it. Like she can pretty much eat anything she wants now, which is just mind boggling. Um, mind boggling considering when she was five, she probably only had about two or three foods and still had to live on formula. So now she's 12 and just going great guns and sort of, there's only one or two things that we're a bit careful about. And other than that, she's fantastic. Um, so anyway, that led into, um, I did a master of medical research and, um, that my, my project was looking at how we can, what the experiences were for parents of children who have EOE in the Australian healthcare system and um, looking at what sort of burden that placed on the families and how we could help them, finding ways that we could help them, where the gaps in care were. And there was a specific focus on complementary medicine use because I knew that in my personal experiences and in my clinical experiences, I felt like there were things that could potentially help, but because there had not been any research whatsoever on those things, um, as in no clinical trials, no sort of published research on using complementary medicine for EOE, I felt like we needed to start that discussion and I needed to start trying to provide some evidence base so that when practitioners were working with uh, patients with EOE, they would have some sort of hard and fast um, knowledge that they could draw upon to be able to prescribe or manage these patients with, um, I guess, uh, a bit of, oh gosh, I can't think of the word, confidence, I guess is the right word, knowing that they weren't going to do any harm and they would potentially be doing good for these these people. But it's a very complex disease. And so uh, it's it's challenging to manage and I don't think that I would have been able to help people as well as I did if I hadn't had that personal experience and had only been drawing on the literature. Uh, so I went through that and now my PhD project is actually um, looking at eosinophilic esophagitis um, in adults and looking at um, starting to establish some complementary medicine base of evidence for uh, managing EOE in adults in clinical practice. And so I'm asking questions all over the world. I'm I'm, um, asking asking adults with EOE in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, the US about their experiences and just trying to get an idea of of how it is to live with this and manage it and what they're they're considering from a complementary medicine perspective. And then asking, I'm going to be asking practitioners in Australia about their experiences when working with uh, these patients. And then um, it will culminate in a pilot trial of some sort of complementary medicine for adults with EOE. Incredible. Amazing. And how lucky are we and any sufferers of this to have someone of you at the forefront. Talk to me a little bit about complementary medicine. So many um, 
drugs and things that are patented. And obviously there's a lot of money in medicine and without, it's not about disregarding it. I absolutely believe in the medical profession in so many ways, but I do find it challenging how discounted many complementary therapies or supplements are almost um, disregarded over, you know, for drugs. What is your experience of this? And do you think things are changing? Look, I think that personally, I am very much about integration of the different systems. There's, there's a lot of value in there's a lot of value in pharmaceuticals in certain diseases. Some some of the people with EOE have such severe damage and um, inflammation in their esophagus and fibrosis that it and they're not being able to manage it well with elimination diets or the the elimination diets are so restrictive that their quality of life drops. And so I think it's really about a balance between how can we make sure that these, because in the end it's about the person and how do we make sure that they have the quality of life um, that they deserve. And so we have to be, I feel like we have to be very careful about poo-pooing one or the other. I think that they they can both work really nicely together and and it's going to be very much about the individual uh, in order to be able to do that. We as complementary medicine practitioners need some evidence. We need to be able to confidently prescribe and manage using our um, our knowledge and our beautiful herbs and our nutrients and our food as medicine. And that's that's what I what I have done with my daughter is I've used my knowledge um, of complementary medicine, balanced it with the medical perspective. Um, you know, my, my original background, my first degree was the sports medicine degree. Um, as I said, I have a master of medical research, but also the naturopathy degree. So I'm very, I've got lots of, you know, conflicting parts of me, but I feel like at the end of the day, um, there are questions about complementary medicine, about complementary medicine practitioners. And I don't think, I think that not all of them are unfounded. There are people out there, um, I guess, saying they're complementary medicine practitioners, saying they're naturopaths, but because it's not a registered or protected title, they don't have to have specific qualifications for it. And so I'm very much for registration of naturopaths so that to be able to call yourself a naturopath, you actually have to have formal qualifications that meet a certain standard. Uh, and, and that I think is very, very important for our um, profession moving forward. Uh, it will allow us more credibility that we are um coming from an evidence-based perspective and having uh, formal qualifications to be able to prescribe and manage patients. Um, And I think like any profession, you have people who are great at it and people who aren't. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes um, it is really, it does just really come down to that. And, um, you know, people can be managed in in certain ways, regardless of what modality they're being managed with. But I think the integration is really important that practitioners are talking to each other, that we're finding the best ways to manage patients um, using the best, what we, what, is it, what are the best things we have at our disposal to help this person have a good quality of life. I've always thought that modern day medicine has evolved from our forefathers and mothers' intelligence, wisdom, mistakes, you know, they would have learned very quickly what herbs worked well and what didn't based on the reaction of their loved ones or people in their tribes or people in their their, their villages. 
So, you know, so much of modern medicine, even pharmaceutical drugs are taken from the bioactive components of the plant and then have been chemically remade or so I do believe there's some wisdom or I, I truly do validate and, and love to know where our anthropological history of medicine mm. has come from. And you only have to look at Hippocrates to know, you know, let there be no, do no harm, but also let food be thy medicine. And I do feel a little bit tragically sad over the fact that we do not pay enough attention to just simple things in life, like good food, good water, sunshine, exercise, movement, grounding, um, prayer, meditation, silence. I don't know. Do you feel the same? Do you feel like there could be a little bit more, um, even through this pandemic, there was not really a lot of discussion around those simple take care of yourself, boost your immune system mentality. It was all based on you need this drug so that you don't die. Oh, What's absolutely. your thoughts around that? Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. I think, sorry, I always think I was going down more of that specific disease that I'm working on when I answered that previous question. So um, although it's not all, you know, not all wrong, but oh, 100%. In, in my clinical practice as a naturopath, the first thing I would be doing is looking at lifestyle and food as medicine. Uh, and ex you know, so, so exercise, what time are you sleep, going to sleep? Are you getting enough rest? Uh, exactly. Are you getting enough sunshine? And a lot of it can be done with, with lifestyle and food as medicine. And that absolutely 100% needs to be the first place we go and the first questions we ask. And I agree with you during, during the pandemic. Yeah. The, you know, the fundamental things that needed to be addressed um, in terms of that lifestyle and food. So, um, yeah, I always think that's number one priority. Absolutely. And, and what you were saying before really, um, struck a note with me about the herbs and, and that a lot of the medical, um, uh, you know, things are being made in labs now, but yeah, there's, you know, willow bark, um, that's where aspirins come from. Um, digoxin, you know, that's from a herbal medicine originally. So there, there's a lot of pharmaceuticals that do take, take their knowledge from traditional medicines. Um, and so it's lovely to still be able to explore those herbal medicines. And there's so much that we can do with those, even just herbal teas, you know, if they're prescribed properly and you're using the right forms. And that's, you know, with supplements and herbs, et cetera, there is, there are different versions of those, those things. And so making sure that you're getting quality products is really important as well in terms of not all are created equally. You know, I think there's big probiotic booms and this and that. And, and just because something says probiotic doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for you. There's some very specific types of probiotics and different species, et cetera, that you need. And so I think having that little bit of support and knowledge um, is really very important when you're looking at complementary medicine prescribing. You need to get someone who really knows what they're talking about to make sure that you're getting quality product and you're not just picking something off as, uh, you know, a multivitamin off a shelf at a supermarket and expecting it to do miracles. Or it can be, it definitely needs to be more specific than that. I think that's the beauty of modern science where mm. we can get bloods, we can get x-rays, we can get scans, we can get so many incredible things from a hair follicle, from, you know, our, our blood, as I said. So I think sometimes knowing what we're treating is, and I love that about you being absolutely vigilant about the diagnosis for Charlie, because so many medical practitioners these days, 
you know, we don't know what's going on. We don't know the outcome. It doesn't seem like there's an answer. There just seems to be so many gut-brain-related autoimmune issues now that we're learning more and more each and every day. So I take my hat off to complementary and modern, modern medicine scientists mm. where we're all trying to, if, we, if our hearts are in the right place and we're all trying to come with the right things, then surely there's a win-win for everybody. I just know for me being in the essential oil world as well, where, you know, you can't patent an essential oil. Therefore, the evidence-based research is so limited in the area that I absolutely love. And a lot of it comes down to intuition or, you know, experience. I've been in the industry for three decades and, you know, I can't, I still can't give you a lot of evidence-based re research in this area of, of a modality that I particularly love, but it also means that there can be a lot of harm um, when there's money that, you know, we can make money from these things, but is it through the intent of wanting someone to be well, or is it the intent of making money from this? And I think I could put that question into mm. the pharmaceuticals. I could put that question into many herbal practitioners as well. Mm. So I, I think what you're saying or what I'm hearing from you is education is key, you know, researching things, being vigilant about wanting to get your questions answered. And there is an element that I've seen in you over many years and the times and the places that I've got to hang out with you is you exude to me a real inner quality of loving thyself. You just, I know there's times where, I know we've spoken about this in the past where we haven't loved ourselves. And I think what you said ages ago was actually really pertinent. It's okay to have a pity party or to not feel great or to actually honor that life sucks right now. But what would you say is the key to loving oneself? And if so, my belief is that it's the platform, the foundation for all life. If you can love who you are, you will get through anything. But what is your definition of that? And, and what are the keys to that in your humble opinion? Um, I think that, I don't think I have one really succinct answer to that. Unfortunately, I wish I did. I feel like being able to, sit back from yourself and be able to see it from a different perspective and to allow yourself to have empathy for yourself, essentially. Is that even a thing? I don't know. It's, it's just that um, I think I'm getting better at it as I get older is just to be okay with, with where you're at, wherever that is, just have empathy for yourself and be, be okay with you doing this thing. You're doing it to your best ability. It's either working or it's not. It's, I think I used to be so driven and so nothing other than perfection was good enough. And I feel like as I get older, I just go, wow, I'm sort of tired of that. I'm just tired of constantly trying to be this perfect thing that I realized I'm, not, no one is. Um, and I think that, I think that being a mom has really helped me with that. And I think as, as my daughter gets older, just going, you know what, I'm, there's days where I feel like I'm not doing enough or I'm <laughs> mucking it up and I'm going to, I'm going to ruin her for life, you know, but then I get a little note from her, or a, a cuddle and a, you know, you're the best mom or something. And it's like, you know what, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm doing all right. You know, and I, I think that just revisiting that is really important. It's so beautiful. Uh, you know, I think perfectionism 
can be our doing and our undoing, as you say. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I think being able, like I love that, being able to sit back with a different perspective, that truly is self-love because in the moment we're only seeing one way, one thing. But if we can step back and look at it from another perspective, maybe even two, three, five perspectives, that is growth and learning. That is challenging our thinking. That is constantly looking for new and better possible ways of our potentiality and our ability. And I think challenges are really there, as you said, to at some point look back on as the adversity or the challenge that you're in to see a new way of being. And I just, I really, I, I don't think you realize just how amazing you are and just the things that you've shared with us today and how freaking clever you are and all the things that you do. But I'd love to ask you one final message to our self-love podcast listener. The, the people that listen to this are real um I would call them warrior queens and kings. They are they are out there to search for answers, search for the best and to be the best example of themselves. And they're going to fight and, and push and demand of themselves to get there. And I think that's what I so love about sharing with people like you. What would be your final message to someone who has a quest to be the best that they can be? Mm, I love listening to that description that you just gave of your audience. That sounds Ah, these are my people. I love it. Just always striving, striving to be the best. I think that that being able to look at yourself, look at where you at, where you are at, be kind to yourself, and can constantly keep looking forward, making those decisions of what you want your life to look like, and then not only sitting back and wishing and hoping that it will end up being that way, but working out what the steps are that you need to take to achieve that thing and then doing those things. I mean, the people who are successful don't sit around waiting for it to happen to them. They make it happen. And for me, I think that that, that is, is a really important part of becoming the person that you want to be, whether it be a goal in business or that sort of thing, or whether it just be, I want to be this kind of person. Well, how do you be this kind of person? You know, that, that is important. I think. And perhaps following people like yourself or <laughs> looking up to people that maybe we think are doing it better than us or that we aspire to be like modeling ourselves of people who are doing it well is one of the greatest. Um, I think at one of our greatest teachers and I just want to thank you for being one of mine. And I, I love your story. I, I, you, know, you and I could talk forever and we haven't had a chance to catch up lately. So this really has been a wonderful opportunity. I'm so proud of what you're doing and so excited to hear how you keep going with your PhD. Um, do you have an end date in line for that? Uh, I think it's a, yeah, it's, oh gosh, that's bad that I don't know off the top of my head, but it's a three-year full-time and I started it in about March last year. So I think... I've got another two years, wow. just, just under two years. Wow. Well, I just think your tenacity, your perseverance and your absolute drive for this, for the greater good of others is so commendable. So thank you thank so, you. so much. But darling, I love to ask, is there a certain quote that um, just either has inspired you over the years, is really important to you right now, or just something that you could share with our beautiful listener today? Yeah, I think I think originally when I was an athlete that never give up, never give up, never give up. That was always my 
the one I lived by. But I feel that in this in this sort of time of where I've cha- I've changed that sort of perfectionism part of me, I think I'm sort of trying to change that. Um, the never give up's a bit too abrasive for me at the moment, I think. So I, I, I guess I'd fall back if I had to pick one, and it's not really a short quote. I'd have to read it out loud. But um, it's probably that uh, Marianne Williamson, Our Deepest Fear. I, I, that's always really resonated with me for a long time, but I feel like I just keep coming back to that because it's something that I think everyone can can benefit from. Could you read it to us? Yeah, let me just see. Hang on a second. It's such a beautiful quote and it really was probably one of those quotes that challenged me to think the opposite to what I was thinking and it really did make me wonder if I myself was afraid of failure or was I afraid of success? Mm-hmm. It was one of those beautiful quotes that got me to turn my thinking. And I think it's, uh, if we really listen to the word, that's why I'm excited for you to read it mm-hmm. to us. As we listen to this, whether you're driving or walking or you're sitting there, maybe if you can, if you're not driving, close your eyes, but just really take in these words as our beautiful Nicole shares them. Okay. Uh, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're our child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I'm covered in goosebumps. (laughs) I never tire of hearing or reading it. And just the way you said it, especially after sharing your story, just... I don't know, we couldn't have finished a podcast in a better way. I want to thank you. Thank you for showing up and being here, but also more importantly, thank you for continuously pushing yourself and driving and thank Charlie and that beautiful husband of yours and all the things, your parents, everybody that has been a part of your life to create you and allow you to be who you are. Nicole, from my heart to yours, thank you, sweetheart, for being on the Self Love Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a treat and I'm so very grateful that you invited me to join you and I got to see your face and have a chat and hopefully your listeners can take a little something snippet away, even if it's just one little, one little bit, that would be wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.